You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Lecture 8. This lecture will concern Veritatis Splendor, Chapter 2, and especially Sections 1 and 2. I'm looking here at the question about freedom and law, and then a little bit later, the question about conscience and truth. In the section on freedom and law, Pope John Paul II begins with a quotation from Genesis. It is another example of his readiness to go back and forth in the unity of the scriptures. And in particular, the passage he picks is Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, which reads, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. We remember that as part of the Genesis story. It's what God had explicitly directed Adam and Eve not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest they die. Thinking about it, not that they would suddenly come to know good and evil, that they knew, but rather it was a biblical way, a symbolic way of saying, don't think that you decide what's good and what's bad. Decision is a matter of how you act, what you're going to do about it. But you must first discover you must discern what is good and what is evil. That is not for you to decide. Well, in starting with that text from Genesis, what our Holy Father, John Paul II, wanted to do was to focus us in on how freedom and law work together. Because in much of modern culture, there is the suspicion that any form of law curtails our freedom. In fact, we know from living in a well-ordered society how very much freedom in society is a matter of ordered liberty and not a pure license. There is simply a strong sense of the way in which freedom and law really go together. But many in our culture, many in the intelligentsia, find just the opposite to be the case and try to suggest some radical antithesis or opposition between freedom and law. Here in that particular passage from Genesis, John Paul II wants to remind us that God is teaching us about where our freedom resides, namely in the power to decide on our action and not to decide on the content of morality. That is something that belongs only to God and is his prerogative. Human freedom is real, but it is limited. There are things which freedom, human freedom does not have a power over, such as making decisions about what is morally good or morally bad. Hence God's law, since it is so well designed to help us prosper, to keep our innocence preserved and to preserve our life, to preserve our marriages, to preserve our friendships, to preserve even what property we gather. Those various commandments are designed indeed to constrain us from sin so as to open us up to the prospect of the wonderful and good use of the things that are at our disposal. Now, in order to follow his comments in the remainder of this first section, I think it is valuable for us to take a few minutes and review what natural law theory is. It is going to be a term which he brings up again and again, and so rather than trying to do it piecemeal, I'm going to try to take a couple of minutes here at the beginning and to talk about the theory of natural law, and then we'll turn back to the text of Veritatis Splendor. There are ancient references to the natural law in Sophocles and in Aristotle and Cicero but nobody put it anywhere nearly as well, as synthetically, as Thomas Aquinas. 
Pope John Paul II is very deeply a Thomist in this respect, and hence his own pattern of explaining it will be much indebted to Thomas Aquinas. One finds Thomas Aquinas' treatment of it in the Summa of Theology, the first part of the second part. In general, it's in the section on law that begins at question 90, and a very important part of the natural law theory is laid forth in question 94. What does Aquinas do? He begins by giving a definition of law in general as an ordinance or directive of reason promulgated by the person legitimately in charge of the community for the common good. And each of those terms has its contribution to make. In his ordinance, a directive, that is, the lawgiver does have to say, here's what we're going to do or not do. It's an ordinance of reason, that is, there's something reasonable about it. It actually corresponds to reality. Having this particular directive will help what has the uh, potentiality to develop well. It must be promulgated or made known, and promulgated by the person legitimately in charge of the community, not just by anybody. And finally, it must be for the common good, and not just for private advantage. Aquinas, after defining law in general in that fashion, then urges that there are four main types of law. Let me go through them. Eternal law, natural law, divine law, and human law. Our dear Pope John Paul II makes much use of those categories. Eternal law refers to God's providential directive for every kind of creature in the whole universe. Each creature is well-ordered for its own end. Each creature is organized in such a way that it has an inclination and a directive to get to its own end. And God providentially has seen to this by the way in which he designed the nature of each species. One finds that human beings also have that intricate design, so we too have been made by the eternal law. But deeply connected with the first kind of law, the eternal law, is the second kind, natural law. And natural law refers to our human participation in the eternal law. By the eternal law, God providentially designed our natures. By natural law, we are given reason capable of providentially looking at our future, and not just at our own individual future, but the future of our families and the future of our communities. We can make free choices. But what that law, the natural law, is, is already the directives written within us so that we who have this power of providential reasoning, this power of free choice, this power of knowing the truth about things, can come to understand the truth that is already written in our nature, what our nature is aimed at, how it ought to operate, how it will truly be fulfilled, how it will really be fruitful. In particular, Aquinas is making use, but developing, the Aristotelian idea of nature. Aristotle, in his book The Physics and in other writings, Aristotle had defined nature as that internal principle of a thing's structure, of a thing's patterns of development, of a thing's typical activities. That is, the nature of a rabbit, there's a certain structure, there's a certain pattern of development, there's a certain pattern of typical activities. Well, so too for us. We human beings have a certain structure, both a bodily structure and a psychic structure. We have a typical patterns of growth, and we are 
very fascinated, of course, learning the patterns of growth that are appropriate and that are inappropriate for a human being. And we have certain patterns of activity, certain actions that are typical, the kind of knowing that we do, whatever it is that we turn our mind to investigate, the types of choosing that we do, whatever the options before us, the types of loving. We are capable of doing things that are deeply opposed to our nature. We can love the wrong things. We can love the right things too much or too little. But it's also capable, is a capacity in us, to love the things that we ought to love and to love them in the right way and the right amount. But for us, as creatures with reason and with freedom, we have to learn to do this. We have some instincts, but nowhere nearly so many as the other animals, and that much of it depends upon the passing down of human culture, the transmission of wisdom, the really giving of education and formation, especially formation in morals. And so what we have here in the case of the natural law is reason reflecting on our nature in order to determine what it is that is good to do and what it is that we ought to avoid. In a way, there's a template. We are all given from the moment of our beginning of our existence, inclined to seek the good, inclined to shun what is evil. But what we have to learn is what is truly good, and we have to learn what is truly evil. And the various thinkers in the natural law tradition focus often on how we are to learn those things, how we're to be given experience of them, how it is that we're come, going to come to understand how the natural law works. It's not that we have to become philosophers. It's a blessing when we have the opportunity to do philosophical study. But it's no more than we have to become philosophers to do the natural law then we would have to have a science of fishing in order to learn how to go fishing. One can learn the art of fishing in the practice of it. So too, one can learn the art of the natural law by living, interacting with parents, with one's church and with the clergy, by interacting with one's teachers, by interacting with one's culture. Reason reflecting on our nature brings about a wisdom in many ways. But notice, it is a wisdom that's rooted in the truth of nature the truth of the way that God has built us, coming to understand that truth and acting accordingly. So that first kind of law was eternal law. The second kind was natural law. The third one that, I, that Aquinas identifies is divine law. Now you might say, well, what's the difference between eternal law and divine law? Eternal law, as I said, is this providential directive by which God gives each thing its own nature and its own inner inclination and path toward what is perfective and fulfilling of that nature. Divine law, on the other hand, according to Thomas Aquinas' uses of the term, picked up by Pope John Paul II, divine law refers not to that. Divine law refers to the explicit statement of the moral law that comes about in Exodus, in the Ten Commandments, the second version of those Ten Commandments that occurs in Deuteronomy, the statement of the two commandments of love that Jesus gives, things of that sort. The divine law is the explicit, in so many words, statement of God's will for us. Human law, likewise, is an explicit human statement made by us about any number of things. When one thinks about the wide range of things that comes within human law, one has constitutions, legislation, administrative statutes, the kind of jurisprudential precedent that comes when judges decide and tell the reasons for their decision. 
And not only formal things like that, but even the rules of clubs, the rules of organizations, customs, the way in which a given family or a given culture expresses politeness or expresses gratitude. Those are customs, and nobody ever has quite legislated them, and yet they are a matter of human law. Now, in this account of natural law that Aquinas is giving, you'll notice that he places natural law like eternal law, and yet he thinks that the content of the natural law is very much like the content of the divine law. That is, the divine law, he thinks, is given to us precisely because not everybody has the opportunity or all of the skill and intellectual ability, or maybe has the time to think it all through for oneself. And so God provided to his chosen people and through them to the whole Christian community and through them to the whole of the world has provided us in the divine law an explicit statement of any number of things that actually can be realized by anybody in any culture at any time period by the natural law. One thinks here of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, The Abolition of Man, in which he makes his interesting comparison between Western accounts of the natural law and the Chinese accounts of the Tao. Other writers have similarly attempted projects like that. What Aquinas is doing is suggesting that the natural law fits in with the general scheme of law. It is by reason, right reasoning, reflecting on our human nature, that we can learn some of these important moral norms. And even if we don't have the benefit of revelation, nonetheless, we are responsible for these things. There are some things that we cannot fail to know. If I were to sum up the natural law understanding that Thomas Aquinas gives us, I am very, very partial to what Professor Russ Hittinger said in his wonderful book, First Grace. And what he notes is, is that natural law theories have three absolutely indispensable components. Admittedly, there are some theories which never even use the word natural law, but they are natural law theories because they adopt these. There are others which mention the word natural law all the time, but aren't really cases of natural law because they fail in one or another or all three of these particular criteria. The criteria that Professor Hittinger identifies are these. First, there has to be a theological component. Secondly, there has to be an anthropological component. And third, there has to be a, an epistemological component. And what he means by that is this. Unless there is a grounding in the transcendent, in God's will as the one who established our nature and provided something normative in it, there will never be an adequate sense of obligation. So a natural law theory, as a natural law theory, has to have a theological component in order to be the justification or the warrant for the obligation that the natural law theory is focusing on. Secondly, there has to be an anthropological component. Namely, what are you, gonna ha you have to have something to look at, and what you look at is human nature. If, for instance, you don't think that there is a human nature because of, let's say, philosophical existentialist commitments, if you think that every one human being is so different from every other human being that there's no common human nature, you're right. You're never going to get a natural law theory out of those presuppositions. But neither will you be able to defend human rights or talk about what is morally normative. If everyone is so different, then there isn't anything common that can be expected. On the other hand, at the other very far end of the spectrum, 
If you think that our nature is so, so, so wounded by original sin that there's nothing left there to spot about God's directives, one probably won't be able to get a natural law theory there either. Part of the genius of Thomas Aquinas was to say that although our nature is wounded and that original sin was quite real and its effects passed on to us, there's still enough left in our nature that we can still see God's design. Thomas Aquinas, favorite, famous for the phrase, grace perfects nature, is implying that there is something there that is good and still ordered and organized about our nature that grace can build upon. This is also what natural law theory builds on. Third, the epistemological component. And here Professor Hittinger stresses that what one has to hold is that the human reason is capable of discovering nature and its norms. If human reason were simply calculating benefit and burden the way a utilitarian thinks that they are, well, one is never going to be able to see what is truly normative about the structures of nature. Or, again, so very much impressed by the terrible derangements of the fall, if one thinks that human reason has been so weakened that one is unable to have the resources to spot what it is that these norms are, and that the fault is more on the deficiencies of our reason, one will never be able to generate a natural law theory. So as Professor Hittinger, I think, rightly reminds us, a valid natural law theory thinks that there is a divine design that is normative, thinks there is a nature where we can find it, and thinks that the human reason is at least sufficiently capable of discovering that. Those are all convictions of John Paul II. And here in Veritatis Splendor, in the second chapter, especially in its first part, we find a very robust and healthy sense of the natural law. The way in which he investigates this and uses this concept of natural law is to think especially, paragraph 36, about the notion of autonomy. This is another one of those cases where JP2 comes up with the distinction between a good cholesterol sense of the word and a bad cholesterol sense of the word. The good cholesterol sense of the word autonomy refers to the human power to be self-governing. That it is, once we understand what our nature is and what is required to fulfill the potentialities of our nature, the right kind of loving, the right kind of knowing, the right kind of use of our talents so that we indeed make a contribution, such as by caring for the needs of our family, such as by providing for the common good of the society. Once we discover what it is that our nature is, we can be autonomous by freely choosing to be responsible in the use of our power. Autonomy refers to whether or not we're independent. Perhaps you have known, I have certainly known, of adults who still were not autonomous. They couldn't make a decision. And if they made a decision, they couldn't hold to it. And even if they held to it, they weren't being willing to be responsible for the decisions they made. The autonomy into which we must grow is the autonomy of being self-governing, responsible for the choices that we've made, thinking ahead so that we make responsible choices, learning so much from our nature about what sort of choices will really help us and what sort of choices will be self-destructive. There are many ways in which our culture has truly embraced a set of self-destructive choices. It does it in the name of autonomy, the name of just cleverness or the name of liberty, but those choices are truly destructive. Even before I 
I flew out here in order to make these lectures. I was that very morning down in the village in New York saying mass for the missionaries of charity, but having to walk from the subway through certain parts of the village. And all I could think of is people who are claiming the wildest things in the name of autonomy. And yet you can see it in their faces and their emaciated bodies, the self-destructive nature of these allegedly autonomous choices that they have made. It is truly sad. In comparison with the good cholesterol sense of self-determination self and self-mastery, the bad cholesterol sense is self-legislative. That is, granting one could use one's autonomy badly. My individuals whom I happen to meet there between the subway and the missionaries of charity walking through part of the West Village. That's a bad use of one's autonomy. But in terms of theory, moral theory, the bad cholesterol sense that Pope John Paul II is worried about is a, a, an excessively Kantian sense of autonomy. In the moral theory of Kant that we discussed near the beginning of these lectures, Immanuel Kant was very much focusing on the fact that any hint of a norm that is imposed on us would make us less than free, would make us less than autonomous. And so Kant rejects notions of norms that come from divine command. Kant rejects notions of norms that come from our nature, that are somehow imposed on us by the nature we happen to have. And Kant wants to insist instead that to be properly autonomous, we must use our reason, and especially our practical reason, to generate norms and then impose them on ourselves. Now there's a way in which the Kantian approach is highly noble. We saw as John Paul II manages to use some of the Kantian language in his book, Love and Responsibility. Kant is a sophisticated thinker. And there are ways in which to interpret Kant quite rightly. But there are, I think, wrong ways of interpreting Kant, and there are ways in which that tradition can become extremely subjectivist. It is those ways, I think, to which John Paul II is objecting. The notion that we could possibly decide on norms for ourselves, and that the norms don't have to have anything to do with our nature. This is the sense to which John Paul II is objecting, and what we have here in paragraphs 36 and 37 of Veritatis Splendor is a sense of what happens in philosophical ethics when you do that, and then what happens even in moral theology when you do that. And in particular, in paragraph 37, what he is, what he's suggesting is the name of certain trends within contemporary moral theology which risk doing that. He names in particular the brand of theology which likes to distinguish between the ethical order and the order of salvation, suggesting that the ethical order, the various moral commands we give ourselves in this Kantian style, have nothing to do with salvation. They only have to do with life on this earth. And that the order of salvation means accepting the merciful love of Jesus Christ. For them, as long as one accepts the merciful love of Jesus Christ, one could decide upon any number of things which are decisions of human reason, making choices for itself about what are good and bad in personal life or in social order. In doing so, John Paul II criticizes them very broadly, and his criticism comes from the fact that they are claiming that there are no truths to discover within the human person. They're failing to see the truth about man as determinative of the truth about ethics. His entire paragraph there 
I think is intending to deal with the theological infections from which theology sometimes suffer. In paragraph 38, he quotes another line from the Old Testament, highly significant. And this is a line from the book of Sirach, chapter 15, verse 14. God left man in the power of his own counsel. There, in that line, what he is noticing is, is that God has respected our human freedom, respected our freedom by giving us a reason and giving us this natural law that we must look at. That is, he has left us to try to find adequate formulations. When we think, for instance, about the laws pertaining to killing, we could simply take the normal translation of the fifth commandment in English, thou shalt not kill. And yet, as we've discussed in a previous lecture, it isn't quite that simple, because there are legitimate uses of lethal force in self-defense, in defense against the, of the innocent, in the defense of one's country, and so on. There is need for us to think this through. John Paul II is all in favor of our own careful thinking it through, using both the contributions of revelation and of good reasoning. But he invokes that particular line from Sirach to discuss one of the great erroneous trends that he finds in contemporary moral theology, namely a crisis of truth and a skepticism about whether there is any truth deep within human nature for us to know that ought to guide us. In fact, some of the theologians to whom he alludes like to suggest maybe what God really gave us is creativity. Creativity for dealing with the mess of this world and the nonsense of life so that what we do is to pragmatically decide on certain norms and certain arrangements so that we can at least live together peacefully. But we shouldn't think that any of the norms on which we pragmatically decide are anything other than pragmatic decisions. One finds this, I think, especially in some of the theologians who are inclined to dismiss the church's traditional teachings about sexuality and about marriage, aiming for simply pragmatic solutions and then handling the consequences in a merely extrinsic fashion. People who invoke the goodness of contraception, people who want to invoke the goodness uh, of various resolutions to marital problems by allowing, as Moses had allowed, people to divorce and remarry, divorce and remarry, that the pragmatic solutions are attempt to deal with only the consequences and not really to deal with the nature of the person. The fact that a person, when a person makes a marital promise, is making the promise as a person to another person who receives that promise, and that that personal quality always needs to be observed. Likewise, with respect to sexual ethics, when one uses and makes the applications here, a readiness to imagine that technical solutions to consequences which are in some way undesirable is enough to solve the problem, but a forgetfulness of the fact that there are persons involved and that what one needs is to cultivate a healthy respect for persons and the unity of persons. Hence, Pope John Paul II, in paragraphs 39 and 40, turns instead to what it is that we must do. For we have been charged with dealing with the world and indeed dealing with the way in which human nature will exist and hopefully flourish in that world. That the Creator has given us great trust, but that in the trust that the Creator has given, we must not use our liberties, especially our intellectual liberties, to do semantic gymnastics that avoid the truths that the Lord has told us. Some of the truths the Lord has told us are said in so many words. In the words of Scripture, in, for instance, the explicit commands of the divine law. 
But others of the sentences and this, of the truths that the Lord is telling us are the truths that he has written about our nature and hence the need for letting the light of Christ shine upon our nature so as to see what it is that human nature requires for its real flourishing. In paragraph 40, the Pope likes to quote Gaudium et Spes often, and he does so here. For the Council emphasizes the role of human reason in discovering and then applying the moral norms to persons and to their deliberate acts, and for this reason focuses in on the relation of truth and freedom, that freedom in the absence of truth would be mere idle um, license, and that rather what freedom needs to be to be authentic is one that is ordered to the truth of the person. Secular theorists, of course, will be quick to see a kind of equivocation in his use of the word autonomy. But as we've discussed in a number of lectures from the very beginning, it is not an equivocation. It is rather a careful distinction between good cholesterol and bad cholesterol words, meanings with regard to the word autonomy. What John Paul II proposes instead, and one sees this in paragraph 41, is what he calls a theonomy. That is, instead of thinking about autonomy in the bad cholesterol sense, as if we got to legislate what moral values are, what we should cultivate is a theonomy. That is, a readiness to accept God's law, both as promulgated in the divine law of Scripture and as promulgated in the nature of the person. In fact, he likes to call it a participated theonomy. Now, that's a mouthful. But I think what he means by it is, we are living instances of the law of God, and we must participate it in our reason by coming to understand human nature in its fullness. No surprise, then, that after he has discussed participated theonomy, his very next paragraph, number 42, begins with a quotation, this time from the psalm, the very first psalm. Blessed is the man who takes delight in the law of the Lord. Sometimes the law of the Lord doesn't seem delightful to us. Here I'd like to return to the theme that we were discussing a lecture or two ago. When we don't find the law of the Lord delightful, I suspect the problem is in our lack of prayer. What we need to do to understand this is to study texts like Veritatis Splendor very carefully, to look and to reason very carefully, to read and to investigate. But at a certain point, what we need is prayer. And we need the prayer for the obedience of faith, a readiness to come to understand what it is that God has designed for us because God has designed it for good. And then there will be that faith-seeking understanding that has typified the entire tradition of Christian theology, a faith that is the higher source of knowledge, the more trustworthy one, because it comes from the higher source, but one that will eventually bloom in a full understanding once we have learned to see by this particular light. In the remainder of this first part of the chapter, what one gets then is a strong and heightened sense that freedom and law are not necessarily at odds. They can be at odds if our laws are bad laws. But when we are conforming to the divine law, what we will find is something in which we can truly take delight. On this topic, we will be able now to pause for a minute, and that when we return in the next lecture, we will consider some of the specific objections to natural law theory that Pope John Paul II mentions, and the response that he gives to them. But we'll save that to the next lecture. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. 
please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.